Kate here, Saints. You're listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword, our Lenten read through the Book of Concord. If you'd like a copy of the schedule, you can find it in the show notes, or you can get a copy by contacting Pastor Kilgo at kilgosr at gmail.com. May you be richly blessed as you meditate on these confessions of the Lutheran Church. The Large Catechism of Dr. Martin Luther, the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. The Ninth and Tenth Commandments You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his cattle, or anything that is his. These two commandments are given quite exclusively to the Jewish people. Nevertheless, they also apply to us for they do not interpret them as referring to unchastity or theft. These are forbidden well enough above. They also thought that they had kept all those commandments when they had done or not done the external act. Therefore God added these two commandments in order that it would be considered sinful and forbidden to desire or in any way to aim at getting our neighbor's wife or possessions. He added them especially because under the Jewish government, manservants and maidservants, were not free as now to serve for wages as long as they pleased. Jewish servants were their master's property with their body and all they had, as were cattle and other possessions. Further, every man had power over his wife to put her away publicly by giving her a bill of divorce and to take another. Therefore, they were in constant danger among each other. If one took a fancy to another's wife, he might declare any reason both to dismiss his own wife and to estrange his neighbor's wife from him, so that he might get her in a way that appeared right. That was not considered a sin or a disgrace among them, just as it is hardly considered sin now with hired help, when an owner dismisses his manservant or maidservant or takes another's servants away from him in any way. In this way they interpreted these commandments, and that rightly, although the scope of the commandment reaches somewhat further and higher. No one should consider or intend to get what belongs to another, such as his wife, servants, house and estate, land, meadows, cattle. He should not take them even with a show of right, by a trick, or to his neighbor's harm. For above, in the seventh commandment, the vice is forbidden, where one takes for himself the possessions of others, or withholds them from his neighbor. A person cannot rightly do those things. But here it is also forbidden for you to alienate anything from your neighbor, even though you could do so with honor in the eyes of the world, so that no one could accuse or blame you as though you had gotten it wrongfully. For our natural instinct is that no one wants to see someone else have as much as himself. Each one acquires as much as he can, the other may do as best as he can. Yet we pretend to be godly, know how to dress ourselves up most finely and conceal our base character. We resort to and invent tricky ways and deceitful works, like those that are now daily and most ingeniously invented. We act as though these ways were derived from the legal codes. In fact, we dare properly to refer to the law and boast about it. 
We will not have this called trickery, but shrewdness and caution. Lawyers and jurists assist in this who twist and stretch the law to suit it to their cause. They stress words and use them for a trick, despite fairness or their neighbor's need. In short, whoever is the most expert and cunning in these affairs finds the most help in the law, as they themselves say. The laws favor the watchful. This last commandment, therefore, is given not for cheaters in the eyes of the world. It is for the most pious, who want to be praised and to be called honest and upright people. For they have not offended against the former commandments, as especially the Jewish people claim to live, and are even now many great noblemen, gentlemen, and princes. For the other common masses belong yet further down, under the seventh commandment, as people who are hardly concerned about whether they gain their possessions with honor and right. Now this happens most often in cases that are brought into court, where it is the purpose to get something from our neighbor and to force him from his property. For this example, when people quarrel and wrangle about a large inheritance, real estate, or such, they help themselves and resort to whatever appears right. They dress and adorn everything so that the law must favor their side. They keep the property with such title that no one can complain or lay claim to it. In the same way, if anyone wants to have a castle, city, duchy, or any other great thing, he makes many financial deals through relationships by any means he can, so that the owner is legally deprived of the property. It is awarded to the other person and confirmed with deed and seal and declared to have been acquired by princely title and honesty. In common trade, one carefully slips something out of another's hand, so that the latter must watch out. Or one person surprises and cheats another in a matter where he sees advantage and benefit for himself. Then the person who was cheated, perhaps on account of distress or debt, cannot regain or redeem the property without damage. The other person gains the half or even more. Yet this property must not be considered as taken by fraud or stolen, but honestly bought. Here they say, first come, first served. And everyone must look to his own interest, let another get what he can. Who can be so smart to come up with all these ways in which one can get many things into his possession by such believable arguments? The world does not consider this wrong and will not notice that the neighbor is placed at a disadvantage by this, by sacrificing what he cannot spare without harm. Yet no one wishes for someone to do this to himself. From this we can easily see that such devices and arguments are false. The same was done in former times also with respect to wives. They knew such tricks that if one were pleased with another woman, he personally or through others, as there were many ways and means to be invented, caused her husband to become displeased with her. Or he had her resist her husband and act in such a way that he was obliged to dismiss her and let her go to the other man. That sort of thing undoubtedly prevailed much under the law as we also read in the gospel about King Herod. He took his brother's wife while he was still living. Yet Herod wanted to be thought of as a honorable, pious man, as St. Mark also testifies about him. But such an example, I trust, will not happen among us. For in the New Testament, those who are married are forbidden to get divorced, except there is the case where one man shrewdly by some trick takes away a rich bride from another man. 
But it is not a rare thing with us that one estranges or alienates another man's servant or maidservant, or lures them away with flattering words. In whatever way such things happen, we must know that God does not want you to deprive your neighbor of anything that belongs to him, so that he suffer the loss and you gratify your greed with it. This is true even if you could keep it honorably before the world, for it is a secret and sly trick done under the hat, as we say, so it may not be noticed. Although you go your way as if you had done no one any wrong, you have still injured your neighbor. If it is not called stealing and cheating, it is still called coveting your neighbor's property, that is, aiming at possession of it, luring it away from him without his consent, and being unwilling to see him enjoy what God has granted him. Even though the judge and everyone must let you keep it, God will not let you keep it. For he sees the deceitful heart and world's malice, which is sure to take an extra long measure wherever you yield to her a finger's breath. Eventually public wrong and violence follow. Therefore we allow these commandments to remain in their ordinary meaning. It is commanded first that we do not desire our neighbor's harm, nor even assist, nor give opportunity for it, but we must gladly wish and leave him what he has. Also, we must advance and preserve for him what may be for his profit and service, just as we wish to be treated. So these commandments are especially directed against envy and miserable greed. God wants to remove all causes and sources from which arises everything by which we harm our neighbor. Therefore he expresses it in plain words, you shall not covet and so on. For he especially wants us to have a pure heart, although we will never attain to that as long as we live here. So this commandment will remain, like all the rest, one that will constantly accuse us and show how godly we are in God's sight. The Conclusion of the Ten Commandments Now we have the Ten Commandments, a summary of divine teaching about what we are to do in order that our whole life may be pleasing to God. Everything that is to be a good work must arise and flow from and in this true fountain and channel. So apart from the Ten Commandments, no work or thing can be good or pleasing to God, no matter how great or precious it is in the world's eyes. Let us see now what our great saints can boast of their spiritual orders and their great and mighty works. They have invented and set these things up while they let these commandments go as though they were far too insignificant or had long ago been perfectly fulfilled. I am of the opinion, indeed, that here one will find his hands full and will have enough to do to keep these commandments, meekness, patience, love toward enemies, chastity, kindness, and other such virtues and their implications. But such works are not of value and make no display in the world's eyes. These are not peculiar and proud works. They are not restricted to particular times, places, rites, and customs. They are common everyday household works that one neighbor can do for another. Therefore, they are not highly regarded. But the other works cause people to open their eyes and ears wide. Men aid this effect by the great display, expense, and magnificent buildings with which they adorn such works so that everything shines and glitters. There they waft incense, they sing and ring bells, they light tapers and candles so that nothing else can be seen or heard. For when a priest stands there in a surplice garment embroidered with gold thread or a layman continues all day upon his knees in church, 
that is regarded as a most precious work, which no one can praise enough. But when a poor girl tends a little child and faithfully does what she is told, that is considered nothing. For what else should monks and nuns seek in their cloisters? Look, is this not a cursed overconfidence of those desperate saints who dare to invent a higher and better life in a state than the Ten Commandments teach? To pretend, as we have said, that this is an ordinary life for the common man, but theirs is for saints and perfect ones. The miserable, blind people do not see that no person can go far enough to keep one of the Ten Commandments as it should be kept. Both the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer must come to our aid, as we shall hear. By them, power and strength to keep the commandments is sought and prayed for, and received continually. Therefore, all their boasting amounts to as much as if I boasted and said, To be sure, I don't have a penny to make payment with, but I confidently will try to pay ten florins. All this I say and teach, so that people might get rid of the sad misuse that has taken such deep root, and still clings to everybody. In all estates upon earth, they must get used to looking at these commandments only, and to be concerned about these matters. For it will be a long time before they will produce a teaching or a state equal to the Ten Commandments, because they are so high that no one can reach them by human power. Whoever does reach them is a heavenly, angelic person, far above all holiness of the world. Just occupy yourself with them, Try your best, apply all power and ability. You will find so much to do that you will neither seek nor value any other work or holiness. Let this be enough about the first part of the common Christian doctrine, both for teaching and urging what is necessary. In conclusion, however, we must repeat the text which belongs here. We have presented this already in the first commandment in order that we may learn what great pains God requires so that we may learn to teach and do the Ten Commandments. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. As we have heard above, this appendix was primarily attached to the first commandment, yet it was laid down for the sake of all the commandments, since all of them are to be referred and directed to it. Therefore, I have said that this also should be presented and taught to the young. Then they may learn and remember it, and we may see what must move and compel us to keep these Ten Commandments. This part is to be regarded as though it were specially added to each command, so that it dwells in and runs through them all. Now there is included in these words, as said before, both an angry, threatening word and a friendly promise. These are to terrify and warn us. They are to lead and encourage us to receive and highly value His Word as a matter of divine sincerity. For God Himself declares how much He is concerned about it and how rigidly He will enforce it. He will horribly and terribly punish all who despise and transgress His commandments. Also, He declares how richly He will reward, bless, and do all good to those who hold them in high value and gladly do and live according to them. So God demands that all our works proceed from a heart that fears and regards God alone. From such fear the heart avoids everything that is contrary to his will, lest it should move him to wrath. And, on the other hand, the heart also trusts in him alone, and from love for him does all he wants. For he speaks to us as friendly as a father, 
and offers us all grace and every good. This is exactly the meaning and true interpretation of the first and chief commandment, from which all the others must flow and proceed. So this word, you shall have no other gods before me, in its simplest meaning states nothing other than this demand. You shall fear, love, and trust in me as your only true God. For where there is a heart set in this way before God, that heart has fulfilled this commandment and all the other commandments. On the other hand, whoever fears and loves anything else in heaven and upon earth will keep neither this nor any of the commandments. So then all the scriptures have everywhere preached and taught this commandment, aiming always at these two things, fear of God and trust in him. The prophet David especially does this throughout the Psalms, as when he says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. He writes as if the entire commandment were explained by one verse, as if to say, The Lord takes pleasure in those who have no other gods. So the first commandment is to shine and give its splendor to all the others. Therefore you must let this declaration run through all the commandments. It is like a hoop in a wreath, joining the end to the beginning and holding them all together. Let it be continually repeated and not forgotten, as the second commandment says, so that we fear God and do not take his name in vain for cursing, lying, deceiving, and other ways of leading men astray or trickery but we make proper and good use of his name by calling upon him in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, derived from love and trusting according to the first commandment. In the same way, such fear, love, and trust is to drive and force us not to despise his word, but gladly to learn it, hear it, value it wholly, and honor it. So this teaching continues throughout all the following commandments toward our neighbor. Everything is to flow from the first commandment's power. We honor father and mother, masters, and all in authority, and are subject and obedient to them, not for their own sake, but for God's sake. You are not to regard or fear father or mother, nor should you do or skip anything because you love them. But note what God would have you do, what he will quite sincerely demand of you. If you skip that, you have an angry judge. But if you do the work, you have a gracious father. Again, do your neighbor know harm, injury, or violence, or in any way oppress him with regard to his body, wife, property, honor, or rights. All these things are commanded in their order, even though you may have a chance and cause to do wrong and no person would rebuke you. But do good to all men, help them, and promote their interest, in every way and whatever way you can, purely out of love for God and to please him. Do this in the confidence that he will abundantly reward you for everything. Now you see how the first commandment is the chief source and foundation that flows into all the rest. Note again, all return to that first commandment and depend upon it. So beginning and end are fastened and bound to each other. This is always profitable and necessary to teach the young people. Admonish them and remind them of it, so that they may be brought up not only with blows and compulsion like cattle, but in the fear and reverence of God. Let this be considered and laid to heart that these things are not human games, but are the commandments of the divine majesty. He insists on them with great seriousness. He is angry with and punishes those who despise them. On the other hand, he abundantly rewards those who keep them. In this way, there will be a spontaneous drive and desire gladly to do God's will. Therefore, it is not meaningless that it is commanded in the Old Testament that we should write the Ten Commandments on all walls and corners, yes, even on our garments. 
This is not for the sake of merely having them written in these places and making a show of them. The Jewish people did that. But it is so that we might have our eyes constantly fixed on them. We should have them always in our memory. Then we might do them in all our actions and ways. Then everyone may make them his daily exercise in all cases, in every business and transaction, as though they were written in every place wherever he would look, indeed, wherever he walks or stands. Then there would be enough opportunity, both at home and in our own house and abroad with our neighbors, to do the Ten Commandments, so that no one would need to run far to find them. From this it again appears how highly these Ten Commandments are to be exalted and extolled above all estates, commandments, and works that are taught and done apart from them. For here we can boast and say, Let all the wise people and saints step forth and produce, if they can, a single work like these commandments. God insists on these with such seriousness. He commands them with his greatest wrath and punishment. Besides, he adds such glorious promises to them that he will pour out upon us all good things and blessings. Therefore, they should be taught above all others and be valued precious and dear as the highest treasure given by God. Part 2. The Apostles' Creed So far we have heard the first part of Christian doctrine. We have seen all that God wants us to do or not to do. Now there properly follows the Creed, which sets forth to us everything that we must expect and receive from God. To state it quite briefly, the Creed teaches us to know Him fully. This is intended to help us do what we ought to do according to the Ten Commandments, for, as said above, the Ten Commandments are set so high that all human ability is far too feeble and weak to keep them. Therefore, it is just as necessary to learn this part of Christian doctrine as to learn the former. Then we may know how to attain what they command, both where and how to receive such power. For if we could, by our own powers, keep the Ten Commandments as they should be kept, we would need nothing further, neither the Creed nor the Lord's Prayer. But before we explain this advantage and necessity of the Creed, it is enough at first for the simple-minded to learn to comprehend and understand the Creed itself. In the first place, the Creed has, until now, been divided into twelve articles. Yet, if all the doctrinal points that are written in the Scriptures and that belong to the Creed were to be distinctly set forth, there would be far more articles. They could not all be clearly expressed in so few words. But to make the Creed most easily and clearly understood as it is to be taught to children, we shall briefly sum up the entire Creed in three chief articles, according to three persons in the Godhead. Everything that we believe is related to these three persons. So the first article, about God the Father, explains creation. The second article, about the Son, explains redemption. And the third, about the Holy Spirit, explains sanctification. We present them as though the creed were briefly summarized in so many words. I believe in God the Father who has created me. I believe in God the Son who has redeemed me. I believe in the Holy Spirit who sanctifies me. One God and one faith, but three persons. Therefore, three articles or confessions. Let us go over the words briefly. Article 1. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. This shows and sets forth most briefly what is God the Father's essence, will, activity, and work. 
The Ten Commandments have taught us that we are to not have more than one God. So it might be asked, what kind of a person is God? What does he do? How can we praise or show and describe him that he may be known? Now, that is taught in this and in the following article. So the creed is nothing other than the answer and confession of Christians arranged with respect to the first commandment. It is as if you were to ask a little child, My dear, what sort of a God do you have? What do you know about him? The child could say, This is my God, first the Father, who has created heaven and earth. Besides this, one only, I regard nothing else as God, for there is no one else who could create heaven and earth. But for the learned and those who are somewhat advanced, these three articles may all be expanded and divided into as many parts as there are words. But now, for young scholars, let it suffice to make the most necessary points, as we have said, that this article refers to creation. We emphasize the words, creator of heaven and earth. But what is the force of this, or what do you mean by these words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Answer. This is what I mean and believe, that I am God's creature. I mean that he has given and constantly preserves for me my body, soul, and life, my members, great and small, all my senses, reason, and understanding, and so on. He gives me food and drink, clothing and support, wife and children, domestic servants, house and home, and more. Besides, he caused all created things to serve for the uses and necessities of life. These include the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, day and night, air, fire, water, earth, and whatever it bears and produces. They include birds and fish, beasts, grain, and all kinds of produce. They also include whatever else there is for bodily and temporal goods, like good government, peace, and security. So we learn from this article that none of us owns for himself, nor can preserve, his life, nor anything here that is listed or can be listed. This is true no matter how small and unimportant a thing might be, for all is included in the word creator. Further, we also confess that God the Father has not only given us all that we have and see before our eyes, but he daily preserves and defends us against all evil and misfortune. He directs all sorts of danger and disaster away from us. We confess that he does this out of pure love and goodness, without our merit, as a kind father. He cares for us so that no evil falls upon us. But to speak more about this belongs in the other two parts of this article, where we say, Father Almighty. Now, all that we have, and whatever else is in heaven and upon the earth, is daily given, preserved, and kept for us by God. Therefore it is clearly suggested and concluded that it is our duty to love, praise, and thank him for these things without ceasing. In short, we should serve him with all these things, as he demands and has taught in the Ten Commandments. We could say much here, if we were to wonder, about how few people believe this article. For we all pass over it, hear it, and say it, yet we do not see or consider what the world teaches us. For if we believed this teaching with the heart, we would also act according to it. We would not strut about proudly, act defiantly, and boast as though we had life, riches, power, honor, and such of ourselves. We would not act as though others must fear and serve us, as is the practice of the wretched, perverse world. The world is drowned in blindness and abuses all the good things and God's gifts 
only for its own pride, greed, lust, and luxury. It never once thinks about God, so as to thank Him or acknowledge Him as Lord and Creator. This article ought to humble and terrify us all, if we believed it. For we sin daily, with eyes, ears, hands, body and soul, money and possessions, and with everything we have. This is especially true of those who fight against God's word. Yet Christians have this advantage. They acknowledge that they are truly bound to serve God for all these things and to be obedient to him. We ought, therefore, daily to recite this article. We ought to impress it upon our mind and remember it by all that meets our eyes and by all good that falls to us. Wherever we escape from disaster or danger, we ought to remember that it is God who gives and does all these things. In these escapes, we sense and see his fatherly heart and his surpassing love toward us. In this way, the heart would be warmed and kindled to be thankful, and to use all such things to honor and praise God. We have most briefly presented the meaning of this article. This is how much is necessary at first for the most simple to learn about what we have, what we receive from God, and what we owe in return. This is a most excellent knowledge, but a far greater treasure. For here we see how the Father has given himself to us, together with all creatures, and has most richly provided for us in this life. We see that he has overwhelmed us with unspeakable eternal treasures by his Son and the Holy Spirit, as we shall hear. The Second Article And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Here we learn to know the second person of the Godhead. We see what we have from God over and above the temporal goods mentioned before. We see how he has completely poured forth himself and withheld nothing from us. Now this article is very rich and broad, but in order to explain it briefly and also in a childlike way, we shall take up one phrase and sum up the entire article. As we have said, we may learn from this article how we have been redeemed. We shall base this on these words, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now if you are asked what do you believe in the second article about Jesus Christ, answer briefly, I believe that Jesus Christ, God's true Son, has become my Lord. But what does it mean to become Lord? It is this, He has redeemed me from sin, from the devil, from death, and from all evil. For before I did not have a Lord or King, but was captive under the devil's power, condemned to death, and stuck in sin and blindness. For when we had been created by God the Father, and had received from Him all kinds of good, the devil came and led us into disobedience, sin, death, and all evil. So we fell under God's wrath and displeasure and were doomed to eternal damnation, just as we had merited and deserved. There was no counsel, help, or comfort until this only an eternal Son of God, in His immeasurable goodness, had compassion on our misery and wretchedness. He came from heaven to help us. So those tyrants and jailers are all expelled now. In their place has come Jesus Christ, Lord of life, righteousness, every blessing, and salvation. 
He has delivered us poor, lost people from hell's jaws, has won us, made us free, and has brought us again into the Father's favor and grace. He has taken us as his own property under his shelter and protection, so that he may govern us by his righteousness, wisdom, power, life, and blessedness. Let this then be the sum of this article. The little word, Lord, means simply the same as Redeemer. It means the one who has bought us from Satan to God, from death to life, from sin to righteousness, and who preserves us in the same. But all the points that follow in this article serve no other purpose than to explain and express this redemption. They explain how and by whom it was accomplished. They explain how much it cost him, and what he spent and risked so much that he might win us and bring us under his dominion. It explained that he became man, was conceived and born without sin, from the Holy Spirit and from the Virgin Mary, so that he might overcome sin. Further, it explains that he suffered, died, and was buried, so that he might make satisfaction for me and pay what I owe, not with silver or gold, but with his own precious blood. And he did all this in order to become my Lord. He did none of these things for himself, nor did he have any need for redemption. After that, he rose again from the dead, swallowed up and devoured death, and finally ascended into heaven and assumed the government at the Father's right hand. He did these things so that the devil and all powers must be subject to him and lie at his feet, until finally, at the last day, he will completely divide and separate us from the wicked world, the devil, death, sin, and such. To explain all these individual points does not belong to brief sermons for children. That belongs to fuller sermons that extend throughout the entire year, especially at those times that are appointed for the purpose of treating each article at length, for Christ's birth, sufferings, resurrection, ascension, and so on. Yes, the entire gospel that we preach is based on this point, that we properly understand this article, is that upon which our salvation and all our happiness rests. It is so rich and complete that we can never learn it fully. The third article, Sanctification. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I cannot connect this article, as I have said, to anything better than sanctification. Through this article, the Holy Spirit with his office is declared and shown. He makes people holy. Therefore, we must take our stand upon the term Holy Spirit, because it is so precise and complete that we cannot find another. For there are so many kinds of spirits mentioned in the Holy Scriptures, such as the Spirit of Man, Heavenly Spirits, and Evil Spirits. But God's Spirit alone is called the Holy Spirit, that is, He who has sanctified and still sanctifies us. For just as the Father is called Creator and the Son is called Redeemer, so the Holy Spirit from His work must be called Sanctifier, or One who makes holy. But how is such sanctifying done? Answer, the Son receives dominion, by which He wins us, through His birth, death, resurrection, and so on. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit causes our sanctification by the following, the communion of saints, or the Christian church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
That means that he leads us first into his holy congregation and places us in the bosom of the church. Through the church, he preaches to us and brings us to Christ. Neither you nor I could ever know anything about Christ or believe on him and have him for our Lord, unless it were offered to us and granted to our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. The work of redemption is done and accomplished. Christ has acquired and gained the treasure for us by his suffering, death, resurrection, and so on. But if the work remained concealed so that no one knew about it, then it would be useless and lost, so that this treasure might not stay buried, but be received and enjoyed. God has caused the word to go forth and be proclaimed. In the word, he has the Holy Spirit bring this treasure home and make it our own. Therefore, sanctifying is just bringing us to Christ, so we receive this good which we could not get ourselves. Learn then to understand this article most clearly. You may be asked, what do you mean by the words, I believe in the Holy Spirit? You can then answer, I believe that the Holy Spirit makes me holy, as his name implies. But how does he accomplish this, or what are his methods and means to this end? Answer, by the Christian church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. For in the first place the Spirit has his own congregation in the world, which is the mother that conceives and bears every Christian through God's word. Through the word he reveals and preaches, he illumines and enkindles hearts, so that they understand, accept, cling to, and persevere in the world. Where the Spirit does not cause the word to be preached and roused in the heart so that it is understood, it is lost. This was the case under the papacy, where faith was entirely put under the bench. No one recognized Christ as his Lord or the Holy Spirit as his sanctifier. That is, no one believed that Christ is our Lord in the sense that he has gained this treasure for us without our works and merit, and made us acceptable to the Father. What then was lacking? This, the Holy Spirit was not there to reveal it and cause it to be preached, but men and evil spirits were there. They taught us to obtain grace and be saved by our works. There is no Christian church in that. For where Christ is not preached, there is no Holy Spirit who creates, calls, and gathers the Christian church, without which no one can come to Christ the Lord. Let this be enough about the sum of this article. But since the parts that are numbered here are not quite clear to the simple, we shall go over them also. The Creed calls the Holy Christian Church a communion of saints. Both expressions, taken together, are identical. But in the past, the expression communion of saints was not there. This phrase has been poorly and unwisely translated into the German as a communion of saints. If it is to be rendered plainly, it must be expressed quite differently in a German way. In the same way, the word ecclesia properly means in German a gathering, but we are used to seeing it translated as the word church, by which the simple do not understand a gathered multitude, but the consecrated house or building. This is true, even though the house ought not to be called a church, just because the multitude gathers there. For we who gather there make and choose for ourselves a particular place and give a name to the house according to the gathering. So the word church really means nothing other than a common gathering, and is not really a German, but Greek, as also the word ecclesia. For in their own language, the Greeks called it a curia, as in Latin it is called curia. 
Therefore, in real German, in our mother tongue, it ought to be called a Christian congregation or a gathering, or, best of all, and most clearly, holy Christendom. So also the word communio, which is added, ought not be translated communion, but congregation. It is nothing else than an interpretation or explanation by which someone meant to show what the Christian church is. Our people understood neither Latin nor German. They have translated this word communion of saints, although no German dialect says this or understands it this way. But to speak correct German, it ought to be a congregation of saints, that is, a congregation made up purely of saints, or to speak yet more plainly, a holy congregation. I say this in order that the words communion of saints may be understood. The expression has become so established by custom that it cannot be cast aside easily, and it is treated almost as heresy if someone attempts to change a word. But this is the meaning and substance of this addition. I believe that there is upon earth a little holy group and congregation of pure saints under one head, even Christ. This group is called together by the Holy Spirit in one faith, one mind, and understanding, with many different gifts, yet agreeing in love, without sects or schisms. I am also a part and member of the same group, a sharer and joint owner of all the goods it possesses. I am brought to it and incorporated into it by the Holy Spirit, having heard and continuing to hear God's word, which is the beginning of entering it. In the past, before we had attained to this, we were altogether of the devil, knowing nothing about God and about Christ. So until the last day the Holy Spirit abides with the holy congregation or Christendom. Through this congregation he brings us to Christ, and he teaches and preaches to us the word. By the word he works and promotes sanctification, causing this congregation daily to grow and to become strong in the faith and its fruit, which he produces. We further believe that in this Christian church we have forgiveness of sin, which is wrought through the holy sacraments and absolution, and through all kinds of comforting promises from the entire gospel. Therefore, whatever ought to be preached about the sacraments belongs here. In short, the whole gospel and all the offices of Christianity belong here, which also must be preached and taught without ceasing. God's grace is secured through Christ, and sanctification is wrought by the Holy Spirit through God's word in the unity of the Christian church. Yet because of our flesh, which we bear about with us, we are never without sin. Everything, therefore, in the Christian church is ordered toward this goal. We shall daily receive in the church nothing but the forgiveness of sin through the word and signs to comfort and encourage our consciences as long as we live here. So even though we have sins, the grace of the Holy Spirit does not allow them to harm us. For we are in the Christian church, where there is nothing but continuous, uninterrupted forgiveness of sin. This is because God forgives us, and because we forgive, bear with, and help one another. But outside of this Christian church where the gospel is not found, there is no forgiveness, as there can be also no holiness. Therefore, all who seek and wish to earn holiness, not through the gospel and forgiveness of sin, but by their works, have expelled and severed themselves from this church. However, while sanctification has begun and is growing daily, we expect that our flesh will be destroyed and buried with all its uncleanness. Then we will come forth gloriously and arise in a new eternal life of entire perfect holiness. 
for now we are only half pure and holy. So the Holy Spirit always has some reason to continue His work in us through the Word. We must daily administer forgiveness until we reach the life to come. At that time there will be no more forgiveness, but only perfectly pure and holy people. We will be full of godliness and righteousness, removed and free from sin, death, and all evil, in a new, immortal, and glorified body. You see, all this is the Holy Spirit's office and work. He begins and daily increases holiness upon earth through these two things, the Christian church and the forgiveness of sin. But in our death he will accomplish it altogether in an instant and will forever preserve us therein in the last two parts of the creed. But the term resurrection of the flesh used here does not agree with good German wording. For when we Germans hear the word flesh, we think of nothing more than a butcher block. But in good German, we would say resurrection of the body. However, it is not a big issue as long as we understand the words aright. Now this is the article of the creed that must always be and remain in use. For we have already received creation. Redemption, too, is finished. But the Holy Spirit carries on his work without ceasing to the last day. For that purpose, he has appointed a congregation upon earth by which he speaks and does everything. For he has not yet brought together all his Christian church or granted all forgiveness. Therefore we believe in him who daily brings us into the fellowship of this Christian church through the word. Through the same word and the forgiveness of sins he bestows, increases, and strengthens faith. So when he has done it all, and we abide in this and die to the world and to all evil, he may finally make us perfectly and forever holy. Even now we expect this in faith through the word. See, here you have the entire divine essence, will, and work, shown most completely in quite short and yet rich words. In these words all our wisdom stands, which surpasses and exceeds the wisdom, mind, and reason of all people. The whole world with all diligence has struggled to figure out what God is, what he has in mind and does, yet the world has never been able to grasp the knowledge and understanding of any of these things. But here we have everything in richest measure, for here, in all three articles, God has revealed himself and opened the deepest abyss of his fatherly heart and his pure, inexpressible love. He has created us for this very reason, that he might redeem and sanctify us. In addition to giving and imparting to us everything in heaven and upon earth, he has even given to us his Son and the Holy Spirit who brings us to himself. For, as explained above, we could never grasp the knowledge of the Father's grace and favor except through the Lord Christ. Jesus is a mirror of the fatherly heart, outside of whom we see nothing but an angry and terrible judge. But we couldn't know anything about Christ either unless it had been revealed by the Holy Spirit. These articles of the Creed, therefore, divide and separate us Christians from all other people on earth. Even if, or even if we were to concede that, all people outside Christianity, whether heathen, Turks, Jews, or false Christians and hypocrites, believe in and worship only one true God, they still do not know what his mind toward them is and cannot expect any love or blessing from him. Therefore, they abide in eternal wrath and damnation, for they do not have the Lord Christ, and besides, are not illuminated and favored by any gifts of the Holy Spirit. From this you see that the creed is a doctrine quite different from the Ten Commandments, for the commandments teach what we ought to do, 
but the creed tells what God does for us and gives to us. Furthermore, apart from this, the Ten Commandments are written in all people's hearts. However, no human wisdom can understand the creed. It must be taught by the Holy Spirit alone. The teaching of the commandments, therefore, makes no Christian. For God's wrath and displeasure abide upon us still, because we cannot keep what God demands of us. But the creed brings pure grace and makes us godly and acceptable to God. For by this knowledge we have love and delight in all God's commandments. Here we see that God gives himself to us completely. He gives all that he has and is able to do in order to aid and direct us in keeping the Ten Commandments. The Father gives all creatures, the Son gives his entire work, and the Holy Spirit bestows all his gifts. Let this be enough about the creed to lay a foundation for the simple, so that they may not be burdened. Then, if they understand the substance of it, they themselves may afterward strive to gain more, refer to these parts, whatever they learn in the scriptures, and may ever grow and increase in richer understanding. For as long as we live here, we shall daily have enough to do, to preach and to learn this. Thanks again for listening to Read Like a Lutheran on Double-Edged Sword. If you're in the Lawrence area, please consider joining us for church on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We also have a variety of Bible studies available, which you can find by visiting our website at redeemer-lawrence.org. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his mercy.